1: Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, a proud part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I am J. David Weeder, but of course you can call me Dave. And on this show I read and discuss comics featuring Marvel Comics' blind lawyer by day, superhero by night, Daredevil. And this time around we are reaching the tail end of the original Frank Miller Daredevil saga. This week we are covering Daredevil number 189, the December 1982 issue, which came to us with a cover by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen. This cover has a yellow background, it's a very famous cover, Daredevil's dropping down with a pair of scythe in his hands as arrows go flying upward at him and swords are raised against him. It's some all-out ninja action, and again, very, very famous, very, very iconic cover, a cover that's been spoofed multiple times, including a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cover by IDW. And this is the second time in several issues that we've had a yellow background, again, making the cover stand out on a comics rack, which is great because a cover is helpful in selling a book. Not that, of course, you should judge a book by its cover, but it does need to stand out to at least get your attention. And this cover definitely gets your attention. There's a lot of action in it, and it's all-out ninja action, which, of course, you know, appeals to me and pretty much everybody else on the planet. People love ninjas, that's for sure. And it does kind of symbolize what we see inside the story itself. And that story inside is entitled Siege. It is written by Frank Miller, who also provided the pencil art and it is inked and colored by Klaus Janssen with letters by Joseph Rosen. It is reprinted in the Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 3, the Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus, and the trade paperback Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Volume 3, as well as being available on Comixology and Marvel Unlimited. And we are picking up shortly after the end of last issue, in which Matt spent most of the time in a sensory deprivation tank trying to get his senses back under control, which he did, under the tutelage of his original sensei, Stick. Two things happened at the end of last issue— Kirigi, the killer hand assassin that's been resurrected, was killed by Stick and his associates, and Black Widow showed up as she is dissolving, literally dissolving, thanks to some hand poison. Which leads us into the opening where a bunch of hand ninja are observing Matt's brownstone from across the street. Inside that brownstone, Black Widow is dead, until one of Stick's associates, Stone, I kid you not, Stick and Stone, we're gonna get into those. He channels some of his life energy into Natasha, healing her. There's not a lot of time for introductions as the hand attack in mass. A ton of hand ninjas just descend on Matt's apartment, and they're overwhelming even Matt, Natasha, and the group of Chase ninjas that Stick has brought with him, to the point where there's only one way to win, or they're going to get worn down, and that is for Stick to sacrifice himself and absorb all of the life energy of the hand ninja. An act that kills Stick, turning him into a literal stain on the carpet. With the original fight out of the way and stick gone, Matt and Natasha catch up a little when Heather Glenn shows up drunk and disorderly, but Matt and Natasha don't really have time for that as they go out hunting the hand, being proactive in this instance. While Matt's being proactive anyway, Natasha goes to speak with Franklin Nelson, who fills her in on what's been going on with Matt's life, including his relationship, and realizes, hey, Natasha, you know a lot about forgery, don't you? And that leads us to a scene where Heather receives a forged note from Matt saying, I don't love you, I can't marry you. And Matt receives a forged note from Heather, quote unquote, saying likewise, and that ends the relationship as nobody will answer the phone and exit Heather Glenn for at least a little while from the book. And if that wasn't a strong enough ending for you, we get one final tag in which the member of the chaste, Stone, informs Matt and Natasha that the hand is regrouping and they're bringing out a new assassin and reviving somebody named Electra. And that is where issue number 189 ends. And that's where we begin, but not just yet. I'm going to take a quick break, a podcast promo will be played, and then I will be back to talk about Daredevil number 189.
0: Movies, TV, comics, music, pop culture affidavit has it all. It's everything random in the world of popular culture, and it's all covered by me, Tom Paneris. New episodes drop monthly at 2TrueFreaks.com. And be sure to check out blog posts about random pop culture topics at PopCultureAffidavit.com. Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork.
1: Welcome back. This is an odd issue in the way that it's paced, The first 13 pages are essentially built around an attack by the hand on Matt's brownstone, a siege, if you will, seeing where the title comes in, right? But the first order of business is resolving the cliffhanger from last issue in which Black Widow entered into the brownstone, falling apart, literally dissolving in front of them. And this would be a cheap cop-out if it didn't play into the way Stick sacrificed himself later in the issue, in which we're moving life energy from one person to another and that magically cures Natasha, abruptly ending that little subplot. And let's be clear, Natasha was clinically dead. Matt even states her heartbeat has stopped, so she did succumb to the poison itself. She did die. She got better, but she died. And there's a very real parallel between the resurrection of the Black Widow and the resurrection of Kirigi a couple of issues ago, in which life energy has to be moved from one person to another. There has to be some degree of sacrifice, and luckily Stone is impervious to harm, and he has a lot of energy because he's bigger physically, and Natasha is not as big. So this also indicates the literal size of the vessel, the person, makes a big difference on how much energy they have in their body, which is a little bit off, but okay, I'll go with it. And as the main opposition to the hand, this is fascinating because both the hand and the chaste work with a sort of balance, the balance of the universe or whatever you want to call it, nature. The balance of energy is probably the best way to put it. Scientifically, energy cannot be created nor destroyed, but it can be converted, it can be reharnessed and redirected. Even though this could play out as simple metaphysical mumbo-jumbo, Miller makes sure that there is at least some sort of relevance to it. Much like Star Trek's pseudoscience where, you know, warp drive does not work, it cannot work scientifically, but you believe it because there's enough of a structure to the thought process that it makes sense. There are specific measurements, there can only be X amount of energy for Y amount of space. It's not specifically stated on the page what the measurements are, but it is implied that yes, there are measurements, you have this much in you, she needs that much, and at least I like that there's gravity to this metaphysical element. It also implies that the Chaste and the Hand use similar methods, maybe to different ends of course, but similar methods of resurrection. Much like we saw Kirigi resurrected, like we're going to see somebody else resurrected next issue. And that kind of gives me the idea that these two rival factions, they occupy the same space. Again, kind of fleshing out a mythology behind Daredevil that is going to become part of his lore going forward and end up really taking over parts of the Marvel Universe. Wolverine would have a great contention with the Hand. You would see the Hand come up again and again and again. So they are introducing some really solid villains and a very solid villain concept to the Marvel Universe that can be grown and built upon. And then the ninjas attack. The Hand descend upon the brownstone and it is one long fight. The actual mechanics of the fight take up eight pages we have about three pages to resolve the black widow stuff then we jump right into the chaste versus the hand and daredevil and black widow in the middle in this we do learn a little bit more about the members of the chaste you have stick of course who wields a bow staff then you have shaft,
0: Listen, shafted, a bad mother. I'm done shaft.
1: who shoots arrows bow and arrow you get it shaft and then you have stone who's impervious to harm basically invulnerable and he wields a couple of katana and then you have claw who literally has claws on the back of his gloves like wolverine it's pretty on the nose but at the same time kind of makes sense it's very straightforward and that's what the chaste would be very straightforward their mission is not a mysterious one it's out to stop the hand And there is an implication that whoever these people were before they became part of the chase, they are not that person now. Much like Men in Black, they have to shed their original identity to be completely devoted to the cause. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's not like they work at Dunkin' Donuts where they can clock in, clock out, make the donuts and go home. No, this is a full-time lifestyle. By the end of this fight, only Stone is left standing as we see Claw get straight up cleaved across his midsection and then and stick are the ones that absorb all of the energy of the ninja stone is left behind to protect matt and natasha meaning that everybody just has to watch a stick and absorb all this energy and destroy themselves literally physically destroy themselves and i mentioned this in the synopsis but i do want to clarify that i am in no way exaggerating they are literally a stain on matt's carpet much like an electrical fire happen which the visual makes sense if you're moving energy around there's a lot going on there yeah there would be a big scorch mark from this And that's where the issue runs into its pacing problems. After this emotional moment, Stone goes to meditate for five hours to regain his strength because the hand aren't done. They're going to keep coming and they're going to get worse. And there's this moment that just threw me for a loop as, as this devastating loss has occurred. As more danger is looming, Natasha says, I feel sweaty, Matt. I'm going to go take a shower. There's part of me that thinks, what else would you do? I mean, there's nothing more that can be done at this exact moment. So, yeah, take a shower, prepare for the next step. But at the same time, it just seems so out of place. Because, I mean, it's like Black Widow saying, sorry, your mentor died. Sorry, you're having this really emotional moment. But I, I got to go have my own moment, a herbal essences moment. Oh, come on. Like, you didn't think Matt would use herbal essences. Come on. She's jaunting off to take a shower. And Matt's like, don't use my loofah, woman. Do not use my loofah. And well, while that's a bit of a joke, we do have a shot of the Black Widow in the shower. Nothing seen, of course. But she's like, I'm feeling better already. How are you feeling? And Matt's like, no time for morning, right? No time for mourning. My mentor's dead. Worse yet, he's a literal stain on my carpet. I got to clean that, you know. There's not enough resolve in the world to get that stuff out. I'm going to have to re- replace that rug completely. Oh, that last part was probably not a joke. He really does have to clean that. That's nasty business. But he actually does tell Natasha, you don't have to be mixed up in this. You're out. You've got what you need. Go on. And she's like, we're friends. We've been more than friends. And she's getting a little cozy with him. And he rebuffs her. He's like, no, we're friends. Whoa, 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 whoa. Engaged, right? And here's the surprise part of that. I mean, Matt rebuffing her was pretty good. I mean, at least it shows he's faithful to Heather. And he actually mentions we're getting married next week. Next week. When was the date set? That kind of comes out of nowhere. Just like proposal and all that. All of this subplot has been really badly handled. And we're going to get into the worst handling towards the end of the issue. I'm just chomping at the bit to get to that. But as if on cue, Heather shows up, she's been drinking, and she's like, I'm celebrating. I have a lot to celebrate lately. I've been celebrating a lot. And she throws this very, very blatant shade Matt's way. She's like, I just love it when you tell me what to do. You're so masterful, Matt. My life is in your hands. I mean, it's pretty clear what's happening. Even Natasha's like, damn, son, you're not picking this up? Because Matt completely misses it. Yet again, he completely misses what Heather's trying to say. I will give Matt just a little bit of slack here as his mentor just died. He's got this whole ninja situation happening. There's a lot going on. Natasha's standing like right there. I mean, awkward. But at the same time, Matt has been doing this all along. I get that his mental faculties have been fuzzy lately and thrown off like his senses. I will give that to some extent, but here he's back to clarity and he's just distracted. He's not giving Heather the moment she needs. She's clearly in pain and it should be blatantly obvious why she's in pain and why she's reacting the way she is, but Matt still doesn't have time for Heather. And maybe here it's slightly justified, but at the same time, at the end of the issue, when he goes out to search for the hand, he ends up with nothing. So he ends up basically wasting a good five hours. And he and Natasha go off to find the hand. I mean, when you go out seeking ninja, how does that work? How do you track a ninja? And I really thought about this this week, and I decided to do some method podcasting in which I drove around town looking for ninjas. And guess what? None of them. No ninjas were seen. I could not find a single ninja in my hometown here. So, well, at least we're ninja free, or at least they're hiding really, really well, which is what ninjas do. They hide. They're invisible. Come on, man. Like, you really thought you were going to track these people? You're literally starting with no information, just that the ninjas are out there somewhere doing something. I mean, Matt's so desperate, he even says, hey, maybe I should drop in on the kingpin. Maybe he would know something about this clan of ninjas. This is a desperate ploy. I mean, it's just, it's filler is what it is for the issue. But it does manage to underscore the emotional situation with Heather and Natasha's like, I don't mean to pry about Heather, Matt, and Matt just totally blows her off. Then don't. Let's try the docks. And this is where Matt and Natasha split up in their search. Matt actually does, I don't know what he does, he goes out searching somehow some way, but Natasha goes to speak to Foggy. And this is where Natasha gets a little bit of information about Elektra, and she is surprised to hear about this, so she had no clue who Elektra was, and Foggy says he went to crap as soon as Electra died. And there's a bit of relief as Foggy's explaining what's been happening, that Matt has snapped the way he's treating Heather. He actually says blatantly he ruined her professionally to convince her to marry him. The part that gives me relief is that Natasha acknowledges that doesn't sound like Matt. So at least we do have a bit of relief that Matt may not be the best boyfriend material, he may not be the best partner, but he's not blatantly mean. And Foggy acknowledges that he's been acting hurt and angry and it's making him mean. One thing Matt Murdock isn't is cruel. He's not completely thoughtless. He's not callous. He may be a bit distracted. He may have his priorities completely out of whack in terms of life, the universe, and everything, but he's not mean. However, this solution that Natasha and Foggy come up with, I've been waiting to talk about this for a long time. They forge notes from Matt, from Heather, to each other. They interfere in a way that they're, they, they shouldn't. One, let's point out something about Matt. Matt gets a written note from Heather. A written note. Not Braille. Not a recording. A written note. With Natasha, sure, she knows Matt and Daredevil are one and the same. She knows Matt is blind, but he can run his fingers across the indentions and quote-unquote read the note. Foggy doesn't know that. The part that stands out to me to this is Foggy mentions, okay, Natasha, you were partners with Daredevil, you were partners with Matt. Matt moved to San Francisco, Daredevil showed up in San Francisco, Foggy never really connects. And there's part of me that wants to believe that Foggy willfully ignores it or just can't make the correlation, but at the same time... There's a huge, huge connection between Matt and Daredevil, and it's blatant, it's obvious, it's right in front of him. And Foggy is far, far from unintelligent. He never put two and two together, and he still continues to do that, even though there's a note from Heather in her quote-unquote handwriting, you know, Forged. That's just simply written, not raised in Braille, nothing like that. And that doesn't ring a little bit odd to Foggy, and that's the part that I can't really completely wrap my mind around. It's some little detail. I know that. It's nitpicky. I know that too, but it is right there. Heather gets this note. She's been destroyed professionally. Think about that. She has been destroyed. She has been stripped of everything that makes her life worthwhile. The one thing she had left was Matt Murdock and that relationship and that potential marriage and that's been taken away as well. And here's an odd storytelling device before I get into the meat of what I want to say about this. I get why splitting up Matt and Heather is a good thing, really for both of them, but but primarily for Heather. But it seems so unthought out because Heather's had everything ripped away from her. Let's take the last remaining thing in her life, even though it's bad, it's still the last thing that keeps her life going and see what happens. Let me just spoil what happens because I want to talk about it freely. Down the road, Heather ends up killing herself. She calls Matt out of nowhere, and Matt, thinking she's just drunk and being silly, blows her off, and she hangs herself in her apartment. Now, that leads us in a storyline that he believes Heather might have been murdered, and he goes pursuing things all the way to Venice, Italy. But the real truth is revealed that she did indeed kill herself. And of course she killed herself. She had nothing left. Her father's gone. Her father's company is gone. Her one relationship where she was closest to being healthy is gone. And for what? So Foggy and Natasha can feel better about themselves and their friendship with Matt instead of being adults and sitting Matt down and saying, look, you're doing some f***ed up stuff, okay? And this is more clear in terms of Natasha knowing both the superhero aspect of Matt Murdock and his daily aspect. She's seen both sides of Matt Murdock. She's lived with that man. She has a certain rapport with him on a level that Foggy can't. Even though Foggy is closest to Matt Murdock as a friend, he doesn't know the full picture. Maybe he should, as I mentioned earlier, but he doesn't. So you're telling me instead of doing the adult thing, I mean, she's a super spy. She's dealt with things that are sensitive in nature. Any number of adjectives you want to throw at it, she's dealt with it. What she does is rarely, rarely comfortable, rarely easy, certainly at times morally ambiguous. And you can't tell me she wouldn't go to Matt and say, look, dude, You need to figure out what's really going on between you and Heather, because this is not good for either of you. Let's say that it happened. Let's kind of extrapolate that, that Natasha calls Matt out on his crap and says, get it together, figure out what you want to do with Heather. Do you want to spend the rest of your life with her? Then what do you need to give her to make that something special? If Matt says, yes, I want to spend the rest of my life with her, how does Matt then proceed? Does he set some sort of career up for her? Something that could honor her father without actually being Glenn Industries? Take a fragment of that? I mean, he's a lawyer. Even if he's not skilled in the exact business law, he can find somebody who is. It's hard for me to believe that Matt wouldn't be able to find a way to salvage some piece of Glenn Industries for Heather. Would Heather remain content to be married to Matt? I don't know. But let's say the answer is no, you're right. I don't want to spend the rest of my life with Heather. I've been cruel to her and Matt tries to make it right somehow, some way. In both of these scenarios, this is an adult approach to what this relationship has become, which is corrupted. It's toxic. Matt's been acting out of character, he's doing things he shouldn't, he needs to try to make it right somehow, and he's deprived of that opportunity to step up to the plate. Likewise, Foggy could also talk to Heather and be more blatant about it. I mean, this could have been a tag team. Natasha, you go talk to Matt, Foggy will go talk to Heather. The same questions are posed to Heather, do you really want to spend the rest of your life with Matt, which her natural reaction would be, he's all I have left. Same situation, Foggy couldn't find some loophole somewhere somehow to salvage a piece of Glenn Industries to redeem Heather to keep her in the game with some semblance of normality and purpose to her life. With that, if Heather had ended the relationship, there would be at least a little bit of empowerment, and Foggy could have maybe found a way to keep her life going, along with Matt, to try to just make the wrong things right, try to correct a path that Matt had led this whole relationship down. Instead, the super spy, the international super spy, and a lawyer, who actually mentions that they're the most expensive law firm in town, a well-renowned intelligent lawyer, decide to do this junior high note-passing business which could easily backfire if heather had answered the phone if the two of them had talked to each other they'd realize i didn't write the note you didn't write the note oh this is goofy i bet i know who did and it turns into some wacky sitcom moment and perhaps through that conversation they realize hey maybe we shouldn't be together and once again in this third option there's a chance for redemption a chance to correct the course that they've been set on and yet they are deprived of that completely by foggy and natasha And we see Heather. I mean, again, as I mentioned, she is crushed. She's on the floor. She's been carrying groceries. The groceries are spilling out over the floor, including probably milk, refrigerated items. She doesn't care. She is deprived of life, liberty and happiness all at one moment. Matt also looks pretty sad, but admittedly, he doesn't look quite as heartbroken as Heather does. It hits Heather a lot harder than it hits Matt, mainly because Matt still has his lawyer career. He still has what's going on in his life as daredevil. You've got the hand bearing down on him. He doesn't have time to mourn. I mean, he's just lost his mentor. He's just lost his marriage. He's losing everything to some extent. I'm going to come back to that particular point in just a moment. I want to finish out what we're talking about here. Because Foggy and Natasha interfered and they ended this relationship without a chance for some sort of reconciliation or course correction heather ends up hanging herself in her apartment and it's not even hard to draw the connective line between this act and heather's act in the end and the heather culmination with her suicide down the road kind of makes me realize that this particular solution not just in story but out of story was horrible in fact the entire subplot is horrific beginning middle and end and it's unnecessary it's filler it never really comes to anything it took a completely separate storyline to make some sort of relevance out of this particular subplot. A storyline written by another writer, drawn by another artist, completely down the road and detached of this. Heather was a character that was easy to simply write out. She can simply go off with Rico, he's a disco man, and be done with it. She's not a character who's super, super relevant to anything Daredevil. Their relationship has always been written as flimsy, and extremely superficial, primarily on Heather's part originally, and this has just been put into this story to make Matt look bad, to emphasize Matt's degrading mental health within what's happening in the greater story. And the big question I've been avoiding, but I need to put on the table, is with Heather Glenn and the way this plays out, the way it ends specifically with her dead Is this a feeling of women in fridges? And for those few of you that may not know, women in fridges is a movement that says that female characters shouldn't be tortured, abused, or killed in order to motivate a male character. And by that, they mean that the female character exists and their fate is as it is just to motivate the male character specifically. And I had to go back over what's happened with Heather and how necessary was it to the overall run here within the Frank Miller and the Roger McKenzie run that we started way back in the day. How relevant has Heather been? For the most part in the early parts, she was almost comic relief. She was kind of ridiculous over the top, getting mad at Matt, going out with Rico. He's a disco man. And I'm 99% certain that's the last time I'll get to say that. So I'm putting it in as many times as I can in this episode, but she's not treated as serious girlfriend material. She's not looked at somebody who's going to have a long-term impact she's not somebody who emotionally affects daredevil that deeply and then abruptly this switch is flipped where heather starts discovering things about her company and she becomes a victim the male board of directors defies her they gaslight her they seek every way they can to undermine her and matt ends up doing the exact same thing he first asks her to marry him then proceeds to treat her like absolute garbage, ignoring her pleas for help, systematically destroying the company she doesn't want destroyed, and yes, to some extent there's some protection element to that, but at the same time, there's better ways to protect somebody. And for a while, Foggy was the only male character to treat her with any dignity and respect. And even that got turned around. So what ends up happening is that the main male character's ex-girlfriend, a super spy, and his best friend, his male best friend, concoct a plan to end this relationship, manipulating everybody involved. And that ends up sending Heather down a spiral. Now, she does date Tony Stark Iron Man for a while. But in the end, she comes back to her pain with Matt. She never truly moves on because when she's thinking about killing herself, she ends up calling Matt. She doesn't put a call in to Tony Stark. She doesn't seek professional help. She goes to Matt because there's got to be something within him that can help her and bring her some purpose back to life. To me, that is indicative of women in fridges. Heather's relevance became more and more prominent as she became a victim of Matt Murdoch's psychoses. And you can put complete blame on Matt, or you can give him a complete pass because of psychoses and what's going on, mental health issues. In the end, when you balance everything, it ends up right in the middle. But Heather Glenn was a sacrificial lamb to further the male character's story. And that is the definition of women in fridges. And it's not an issue I've seen brought up as an example, but it is a prime example when you extrapolate that character's fate. I know I've been on record as not liking Heather. She was annoying... She was not a good match for Matt, and that makes this all that more egregious that I am actually calling out some bad writing, some strong masculine vibes. I mean, when you think about the Frank Miller run on Daredevil, there's some things that really stand out. We have, of course, Heather, which I've gone over just a few minutes here, but you also have Electra. Electra shows up. She's this badass assassin. You learn that she was once Matt's girlfriend. She does some cool stuff, but the main thing she's remembered for was dying. The most iconic shot of this entire run is probably Elektra getting stabbed by Bullseye with her own sigh. And you absolutely know the image. It's been replicated multiple times. The sigh protrudes from her back, not ripping the fabric of her costume. A thinly veiled allusion to rape. Let's add to that that we have Vanessa Fisk, another female character, who ends up in this whole male-dominated gang war, gets buried, gets captured by this corpulent horrible sewer king and then loses her entire mental faculties we've had issues that deal with the theme of bondage of stalking in which becky revealed her past there are some damaged female characters in this let me be clear on what i'm saying here so i'm not misinterpreted it is absolutely okay to be quote-unquote damaged you can have vulnerabilities you can have painful spots emotionally speaking and that goes regardless of your gender What I am seeing here, though, is a trail of female characters who are cast in this really horrid light in which they are damaged, and that is cast in this very, very judgmental way by the male characters, and that's something that Frank Miller carries forward in a lot of ways. Think about Dark Knight Returns when you first meet Selina Kyle in the future. There's a strong implication that the Joker had his way with her. She's also a prostitute. She's in a submissive role, and she's been victimized by the male character. And hey, let's come back to Daredevil itself when we get to Born Again and we find out what happened to Karen Page. I don't want to completely rag on Miller, but Miller's treatment of female characters can be extremely uneven. For every Nancy from Sin City and Carrie Kelly, there is a Heather Glenn. And Heather Glenn was treated unfairly. Vanessa Fisk was treated unfairly. Again, her mental faculties were taken away from her to motivate and move the kingpin. If I have one blanket criticism of the entire Frank Miller run of Daredevil, it is his treatment of female characters. And of these female characters who are victimized throughout this run, there's only one character that gets a chance for redemption. She gets, quote unquote, fixed by Stick, and that is Natasha. Now, she had appeared when Frank Miller was doing the art, but Roger McKenzie was writing the book. When Frank Miller first writes Natasha coming into this, she's victimized by the hand. Now, I feel like this isn't quite as blatant and egregious as the other acts because Natasha is indeed a superhero on her own. Her victimization came by way of fighting the hand, but she was still victimized by getting poisoned by way of being pricked by a foot spike. Miller made sure that when Elektra died, the violation and the very coarse undertone of that violation was very, very clear. And he's never been ashamed to admit that that was exactly what he intended. There is part of me that thinks that the context of this book can make a difference, that it was 1982, that things were different, but did they need to be different? I mean, what we're talking about here is not exactly progressive new ideas. Yes, the women in fridge movement hadn't come along until the late 90s or so, but the idea of female characters being three-dimensional, being strong, that was still on the table. And from my later Frank Miller readings, not just in Daredevil, but other avenues as well, Sin City being a perfect example, women are not given their due very often. Miller likes to make them femme fatales or victims or love interests. And that's kind of a short-sighted way to look at it. I think any character can be fantastic, regardless of their gender, their race, their ethnicity, their religion. If a writer allows that character to really flourish and be whatever they are and tell good stories around that character, any character has that potential. And Miller is simply dismissing these female characters. And that to me is unacceptable. Now, of course, at this point, Heather Glenn is already gone. We've still got Natasha in the mix. And as we learn at the end of the issue, the hand is ready to resurrect Elektra. And I just talked about how Elektra was brutally killed in a way that made sure it implied rape and violation and how Natasha was the only character to be given a chance for redemption by being healed. So what does this mean? This means that Elektra is being brought back for what? only to motivate Daredevil. Now, is that how it actually plays out? Well, this issue, yes, it's a a stinger to make sure we motivate Daredevil. And of course, Natasha, knowing who Elektra is, realizes what's happening. But let me be clear, that's only in the context of this particular issue. We're going to talk more about that next time. Let me do my final verdict on Daredevil number 189. My main complaint of the last few issues is how thin the plot is. And while that's true here, it also gives us something different. There are answers, there are revelations, there are resolutions. We've left the holding pattern and things are moving forward, albeit slightly slowly. Out of 22 pages of story, there are 13 pages devoted to a ninja fight, which of course, we all love ninjas, we want to see some fighting when we enter a comic book, or some of us do, and it challenged me to think, what do I want when I pick up an issue of Daredevil? Well, what I want is a good balance of character, of progressive plot, if there is one, and of course action, but I want good dialogue, I want good art. I want some meat on the bones of any particular issue I'm reading. A balance, if you will, and this issue is out of balance. I certainly enjoyed the fight sequence, but it went on way, way too long. And once again, we're given an issue where there's a lot of filler here. And given that next issue is a double issue, I think some of this filler could have been fleshed out throughout these last few issues. And I'll get more into that when we dig into next issue, because that's where I'm gonna backtrack and talk about where this could have worked better. Easily the most bothersome aspect to me is the matt and heather thing and even that's kind of shoehorned in when you look at the art when matt receives the news he is back at the office in matt murdoch gear trying to call heather and he just sternly puts the phone down this is after a scene where daredevil is given five hours to look for the hand while he waits for stone to come out of his meditation and he's supposed to be searching the city and the next scene after this is matt back in his daredevil gear having searched the city so it seems very much shoehorned in painfully and unnecessarily And then we have Stick and his sacrifice along with Shaft. And the fact that they did something metaphysical that did have some relevance, as I mentioned. And that this was a character of relevance that was killed off on panel. And yet there's no real time for mourning. Some of that is in context of the story, but some of that is Miller just didn't want to deal with it. Hey, this character is gone. Let's move forward. Let's not cry now. Let's, Let's just keep the story moving. And while I agree that the story moving forward is relevant... What have we been doing for the last two issues? We've been killing time, waiting to get to this moment, only to have it taken away by removing the emotional resonance. Even though Stick was a later addition to the Daredevil canon, he was a relevant, important addition. Moreover, he was emotionally important to Matt Murdock, especially when Matt was a young boy. It's not an exaggeration to say that Stick is a big, big building block to Daredevil. The persona, the look, the skill, all of that comes from... Some piece of stick, as well as stick being a character who was an adjunct father character, probably more an uncle. It's probably the best way to put it. A really, really cool uncle that Daredevil was really close to as a kid. And when he dies, the idea that Natasha goes, well, I'm going to go take a shower really bothers me. It just takes the emotional moment and squanders it completely, and that is kind of the core of this issue. We have a relevant character sacrifice against an enemy that's almost unstoppable, and that's an enemy that's coming for Daredevil, and we get this moment of, eh, time to go lather up, I'm a little sweaty. And then she puts the nasty costume back on, that's kind of gross when you think about it. Or does she throw it in the washer and dryer? I don't know. Either way, it's such a squandered moment that could have been super, super relevant, and super poignant, and Miller skips that, and moves forward. The issue is completely structured wrong with those first 13 pages being fast-moving action, the last nine pages being basically subplots fizzling out. I'm assuming with only two issues left in the run that Miller knew he was on his way out the door. So some of these subplots he's had brewing need to be wrapped up quick. Much like Kirgi getting killed last issue, I didn't comment too much on it because it was just kind of there. Kirgi was resurrected and killed within just a few issues without much relevance or fanfare. I think when it comes down to it, what this feels like is Miller is checking off these boxes of things he has to do before he wraps things up and he doesn't really get them all in this issue. I mean, next issue is the big, big climax and then an epilogue So all the plates that Miller's have been spinning need to be stopped, need to be dropped, and need to move on. There's a graceful way to do it, and there's an ungraceful way to do it, and this particular issue is the ungraceful way. We've got rid of Stick, we've got rid of most of the chaste, we've got Heather Glenn out the door. Okay, what do we need to do? Let's wrap up everything. It's far from a bad, bad issue. It just misses so many opportunities that Miller has taken in the past. He's not one to completely dismiss emotional relevance, but here it feels rushed, it feels stretched out, and it feels forced. But now I feel like a negative Nelly. I think I've made my point that this was a lackluster issue. But of course, that brings us to the end of another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And next time, next time is a big deal. We have a double-sized issue. It is the ultimate conclusion to the Frank Miller run, even though there's an epilogue after that. And we're going to learn a lot about Elektra, a lot about the hand. And a lot about life by the end of the episode. That is in one week. Until then, remember, I am J. David Weeder. Justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only.
0: Here. Is-